You're listening to a River Life Fellowship message. We hope this message encourages you and enriches your life. For more information about us, visit us at riverlifefellowship.com. Well, Michael, we just wanted to welcome you, and uh, after he speaks, we'll, we're going to receive an offering for him, uh, for his ministry. Uh, I like the name of his, you can come on up. I like the name of his ministry, ICN, Israel Church in the Nations. It's a really great name, and he's got some books out there that he's selling. I've read several of those books. They're all excellent books. Uh, this guy is really smart. I mean, just brain-wise, he is smarter than your average guy, but he, but he loves the Lord. He really has a passion for God. He has a, he's really filled with the Spirit. And that's really what I like about him is he's one of these real smart people, but he loves God and is sold out to God. And that's, that's really what you want is, you know, smart people and dumb people who are just sold out for God. So maybe we fit in there in between or maybe we might be on the low end of the scale. We don't know where we fit. But that's the thing that really impressed me the most about him is that this man really has a real passion for Christ. And I believe it's a contagious contagious passion, and I think God is, really wants to use him in this area. So let's just give him a hand, welcome him. Well, I'm, I'm glad you don't hold anything against New York Jews, because I am one of them. And uh, my wife and I lived in Pensacola, Florida, which is basically Lower Alabama, for seven years, and... Um, God bless Lower Alabama, but I went through culture shock daily for seven years, and I, I think the folks around us went through worse culture shock with us. Uh, but it's it's uh, great to be with you, folks. And actually, since we <clears throat> excuse me moved into the into the area, a lot of our folks came over the summer, and then in the fall we've actually had about 300 people move into the Charlotte Concord area. Uh, it's been quite an extraordinary thing to see, and. Uh, this is the, uh, since we moved uh, ourselves in the fall here, this is the first local congregation that I've spoken in and uh, the friendship with your pastor and Dave Harwood and also his heart for Israel that brought us here. So glad to be with all of you this morning. I, I just want to explain to you something that will give you an understanding of the difference between New York and the South. Is that okay? Um, someone came up to me the other day and said, so how does it feel to be up north? In other words, from Pensacola to North Carolina. I said, listen, this is not north. Trust me. This is not, even though it's called North Carolina, this is not north. This is like South Dakota. It's not south, okay? It's probably southern Alaska if you go there. That's not really south. Uh, we had some friends, uh, graduates from our school of ministry, uh, um, mom and dad now with seven kids, that God called to be part of the work in New York City. We have a branch school in New York City. And we have works all around the world from our grads that have gone out and are establishing different things. They felt called to be part of the work in New York and just undergird it with prayer and so on. So they're, they're driving in their van in New York City. And uh, Canadian originally and lived in the States these years. And they're, they're in New York City. And they, uh, they're driving one of the roads there. And, and the light turns yellow. So they slow down and stop for the red light. And a policeman pulled up next to them and rebuked them for slowing down at a yellow light. So that's dangerous. You go through that. See, the, the New York way, when the light turns yellow, you know that's, that's you and the five cars behind you. You're going to get through. And I don't know how many accidents we almost had because I'll be behind someone as the light turns yellow. I hit the gas. He hits the brakes. and we. So that's kind of a little picture of the difference. And, you know, some folks come to New York and they're a little put off by the people because they kind of tell you 
what they think and what they feel. And uh, when you really like someone, the way you show it in New York is you insult them. It's kind of, it's a, not the best thing culturally, but there are these differences. In, in the South, everybody's sweet, nice, and gracious, but you don't know what they really think. So you, if you kind of flip it over, it's positive. You know, you have to just kind of overcome these things. And, but uh, we, we're, we're uh, delighted to be here. Uh, I mean, in this area in particular, uh, when we were praying, uh, we had been in Pensacola those years, and God began to speak to us that it was time for us to move on with our school and with our congregation, all of which had been birthed out of revival. Uh, when God began to speak to us about things, uh, some of our leaders really heard from the Lord about Charlotte. And I, I thought, if we're going to move, let's move. You know, New York. Let's move to you know major city somewhere. Let's move out of the out of the South, and uh, just you know, my, in other words, why we were in Pensacola because revival broke out there, and, and God had us raise up a school. Within two years, we went from zero to over a thousand full-time students. I don't think anything like that ever happened in America. And then within two years of that, we had grads as missionaries in over 20 nations. It, it's absolutely wild to see what happened. And then you know, we downsized as, as things changed, and now we're praying about where we're supposed to relocate and, and uh, some of the brothers were saying Charlotte, I said, why, why stand in the south I mean, why Charlotte and one of my close friends said you know at a faculty meeting the other night the Lord said to me tell Mike not to despise Charlotte I didn't know what it meant but that was the word because again in my thinking you know let's we'll move to a major city and you know and, and maybe a DC area or a New York City area or something and then as we began to pray God made it plain we were to relocate our, our major base and training center and, and so on to this area. And we thought, okay, you know, it's a rapidly growing area, and there's an international airport, and it's because we have so many missions things going on, and, and uh, you know, college campuses and so on. And so there's a major financial base in America. Once we actually started to get here and drive around and pray and consider things, we realize that even those things, even though those things are nice and helpful and positive, that's not why we're here. We're here primarily, as as your pastor rightly <coughs> related, we believe we're here primarily because it is God's purpose and will to pour out His Spirit in this area. That there are promises. I I know there are promises all over the place, but then there are specific promises, and and for whatever reason, we we know that God's called us to be part of this, to get to participate in it. And right now we're, we're sharing a building with, with a wonderful congregation in Concord. Our hearts are just knit together. We've had a kingdom welcome from, from many of the key ministries in the area. And, and we know that, that God intends to pour out His Spirit mightily. How many will actually go with that when it happens is always another question. We pray for revival. We pray for outpouring. We pray for God to come. And then when He shows up, we say, uh, actually, we, we kind of like it the old way. It's more comfortable, less challenging, less costly. But for those who are hungry and thirsty, it's the only way to live. Amen? Uh, when the meeting's over, I'll be, uh, I'll be getting out early, if you can forgive me for that. And hopefully we'll hook up another time and get to mingle a little bit. Uh, there is a book table with materials. Uh, I encourage you to get hold of, of the books. They will impact you as you read them. God heavily impacts me as I write them. Whether it's uh, Jewish ministry stuff or stuff on revolution, read these. They'll impact you. Uh, and as you give, you're, you're, you're literally holding our hands up. Uh, to reach the Jewish people and to take the message of repentance and revival around the world. We, we go uh, early April uh, to the Philippines for a major national conference, Jesus Revolution Conference. Their hearts are being stirred for the gospel. Uh, we have five of our finest couples over planting a work there in the Philippines. And uh, this past week, culminating tonight, we've had a missions conference 
where our different workers come in from around the world. And uh, it, it's mind-boggling to see, and, and from around America, it's mind-boggling to see what these people are doing. Uh, one of the couples uh, came back. Uh, this was a gal who used to work in the office for my wife in, in the admissions department in our school. She and her husband never been on the mission field. God put it in their hearts to go to the jungles of Irian Jaya. I'm, I'm talking about Stone Age situation. I, I'm, talking, I'm talking about people that had, had uh, not been discovered. Their existence was not known until about 40 years ago or so. The, the first missionaries, folks we know, who went in there, went into completely naked people who had never seen a white face before. And uh, no language in common or anything. They had to learn the language and so on. This, this couple is called. They're, they're just out for a little while and, and on their way back. They gave me, just as a, and the, the tribe that they're going to be staying with, 150 people. The only, the only believer among them is the chief. No one else is a believer among them. They gave me as a gift uh, this necklace made of, uh, the string is made of tree bark, and on it are these wild boar's tusks. And, uh, I mean, it's, it's, I, I came in with it, you know, to a service. Some of the folks thought it was like dinosaur claws or something, just kind of wild. And, and uh, they were telling me uh, that the, the men have been inviting this fellow Daniel to go on a crocodile hunt. And his wife is a little reluctant. Tina's a little reluctant to have him go on the crocodile hunt, you know, because, well, you know, he could just be clumsy or fall or something could happen. And he's a crocodile. And he said the way they hunt now, they go out because uh, they've gotten, you know, they've developed a little bit. They go out in a boat that has a motor at night. And then they have these flashlights and they, they look, you know, which they didn't have before, of course. And they look in the water and they have the spear, you know, to go after the crocodile. They said the way they used to do it, was that they'd go during the daytime. I'm just giving you an idea of where some of our people are laboring for Jesus and bearing fruit and making an impact. They said in the old days, when they used to go out, and the old days meaning until just very recently, they would go during the daytime so they could see the crocodile. They'd wait for the sunlight. They could see the crocodile sleeping on the bottom of the river. And then they would... They'd be out there in their canoe. Two boys would swim underwater with a rope to put around the crocodile's neck. And if it started to wake up, they would just kind of tickle it under the, under the throat there, and it would, it would start to fall back to sleep. You wonder who it is that figured that one out, you know? And uh, if it woke up quick, they were in trouble. I mean, they actually lost people over this. But if, if it stayed asleep... You know, then they'd wrap the, the, the thing around its neck and swim back up, and then someone would jerk on the rope, and then it would come up, and they'd shoot it with arrows. This is where we have people just like you guys. There, there's a couple that just emailed me from East Germany. They went to the mission field as great-grandparents. Never been on the mission field. He had been a contractor and a builder for years. They went on the mission field as great-grandparents from the south with their southern drawl trying to learn German. In, in, uh, in part of former East Germany, where almost the entire population is atheistic, where the people are completely lost, where you can talk to them about Jesus, they have no idea who you are talking about or what you are talking about. This is where people are going and bearing fruit for the gospel. And if God's called any of you to train in a full-time way in an intensive environment, young people, older people, get equipped, go out, stay here, go out to the ends of the earth, we're here to help serve and equip. And that's what you're also giving towards at the end. Well, let's pray. Father, we love you and we honor you. 
I thank you for your people here. I thank you for their love for you and their devotion for you and their desire for you and their open hearts to you. I thank you for the release in my own spirit to speak the truth this morning. I pray that you would give us each ears to hear what your spirit is saying. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Go with me to Acts, the 17th chapter. Acts, chapter 17. I want to ask you a simple question this morning. Did Jesus come to start a revolution? Did Jesus come to start a revolution? Before we read this, I want to throw something out to you for your consideration. There were people in the body 150 years ago who loved Jesus, who studied the Word, who prayed and sought the face of God, and yet they had a lot of stuff wrong about healing, about the gifts of the Spirit, about the power of the Spirit, stuff that you just take for granted, stuff that you just read and believe and understand because it's been part of your life experience. They read the same Scriptures, they prayed the same way, but the light just hadn't really shined on that for them. Why? Because they were, they were part of certain church traditions that they inherited. They, they, they saw things through certain eyes because that's all they knew. If, if you talk to someone, say, that's from a strict Roman Catholic background today, and, and, and say, well, in certain ways you're not really following the Scriptures here, they'd be surprised to hear it because that's what they know. That's what they're used to. The fact is, on a different level, it's the same for every one of us. We are still products of our environment. We're, this is what we're used to. You go to other countries in the world, you sit in other worship services, you watch the way they, they do evangelism, you watch the way they, they do church, you think, what, that's wrong. That's, and then you realize, well, maybe it's not wrong. Maybe it's just different. Or may, maybe it's not what I'm used to. Or maybe I have some traditions that I'm not aware of. If anyone here thinks that you have arrived at full revelation of the truth in every area, and full insight and understanding of the purpose and plan for God for this generation, and full revelation of what the church is to be, then I would tell you, you're sadly deceived. We are growing. We are moving forward. The fundamentals we're sure about. The blood of Jesus and salvation only through Him, and forgiveness of sins, and new life, and the Great Commission, and, and, and so many other things. Oh, those are non-negotiable, but there are a lot of other things. This is just the way we do it. It'd be like if I come from New York and I think that this is the only way people speak English. When I was in England the first time as a boy, I was sleeping in the morning because I was jet lagged and I heard my cousin talking with some of his friends and they were saying, does he have a really big American accent? And I said to myself, you know, I heard that. I said, I don't have an accent. They have an accent. Listen to me. There's a lot of stuff that we have inherited that we think is just normal, but it is simply what we got used to, the way we learned it. And what we need to do is go back to Scripture and allow God to challenge us by His Word, because every one of us would say, we're people of the Word. Wouldn't you? Which has more authority, the Scripture or church tradition? Can a, can a prophetic Word come along that can override what's written in the Scriptures? We're people of the Word. And what we need to do is continually come to the Word and say, God, strip away wrong understanding that gets in the way of your Spirit. Lord, strip away everything that stands in the way of me being fully effective for you. Lord, I don't want to live my life and live 50 or 60 or 70 or 80 or 90 years and come to the end and find out that I was playing games thinking that I was in a war. 
I, I, don't, I don't want to spend all my life just like a little hamster in a cage, you know, running around, running around, running around. And when I get to the end, I haven't accomplished anything. I, I don't want to use faulty weapons if they're better weapons that you have in the spiritual battle. While we're here, while we have life and breath, let's make an impact for God. I mean, if you don't know the Lord, or you're, you're just coming to know Him, let Him just love on you and show you His kindness and His love and His purpose. But as you come to know Him, understand, you're here to make an impact. You're here to make a difference. One brother shared his testimony. It was well-known testimony for many years, especially in charismatic circles, that he had he'd come out straight out of the world into Bible studies with no religious background at all and had gotten saved in a Bible study and was just reading the Word, reading the Word, reading the Word, reading the Word. And finally a friend of him said, you know, you really should come to one of our church services. He thought, okay, that sounds like a good idea. But he had no background in this. Just like when I got saved at the age of 16, shooting heroin, living in complete rebellion, with no church background as a Jewish person, no church background at all. It didn't dawn on me that the first thing I should do is start going somewhere on a Sunday morning. That was not part of my background or lifestyle. So this brother goes on a Sunday morning, and he's kind of enjoying the service. This is cool, you know, singing. And, you know, when the, the pastor got up to, to pray, you know, he had met the pastor and then said hello, and the pastor got up to pray, and, oh, our Heavenly Father. And the guy turned to his friend and says, what happened to his voice? I mean, suddenly everything changes. He said, I think that's how they learn it in seminary. It's kind of like that. And it seemed a little odd. And, and went on with the service, and he's kind of uh, singing this song like this. You know, a little preaching, it's good. And then it ended. He's a little baffled. Second time, same experience. Afterwards, he, he wanted to ask some people, I, I don't get it. I mean, I've been reading the Bible. You know what it talks about? They, they went out two by two, and you know, they healed the sick, and they drove out demons, and they preached the gospel. And he said, when do we actually do that? He figured they come to a meeting together, they pray, and they okay, you go here, you go here, we go here, let's do it, praise God. He said, when do we actually do it? One of the guys said, we don't do it, we just sing about it, talk about it. And you say, what happened to this dear brother? After a while, he just got used to it. He just got used to it. We get acclimated to it, accustomed to it. And what we do is when we actually read the Scriptures, we read them with these glasses on that filter and color it so it just fits our lovely religious experience. It fits our Sunday morning or Sunday night. or Whatever just fits our lovely religious experience. I'm going to read this in a moment. Hang on. I'm going to be culturally sensitive. I'm fixing to read the Scripture in a moment. Is that good? Is that good? All right. I'm going to do it right quick. I, I used to sit. I'd say this one little thing here. Sometimes during the revival services, they would have to translate for me. Someone give a testimony. We, we, we lived in Pensacola a year to two years before we actually understood that Bubba was actually a name. Like, it was like the light one, like revelation. Like, Wait a second. That's actually a name. One particular time, I'm on the platform with the guys on a Sunday morning in Brownsville. I wasn't traveling out that week. And, and, and I was, whenever I was there on a Sunday, I'd just get up and say a little bit to the folks and tell them some of the stuff that was going on. So the associate pastor turns to me and says, Mike, he said, when you get up and talk to the people, he said, could you emphasize sales? Sales. Can I emphasize sales? I thought, maybe a lot of our students are looking for work. And I should emphasize that there are sales jobs that are available. I thought, sales. Sales. I'm, you know, my mind's going quick, you know. Sales. Maybe 
It's like, it's like a bake sale. Maybe it's the children's ministry. Bake sale or something. Emphasize sales. And then he, as, you know, he just pulled my mind just going quick, you know. Sales. Every possibility as to what it means. And he says, then he says, because we're going to be starting the sale groups this week. And uh, so, I mean, I lived through that for years. But before we read this, let me tell you what we often do. I've, I've flown over the Atlantic back and forth, I'm sure, well over 100 times, you know, just on ministry trips around the world. And, uh, you know, my mind's decent. I remember things pretty well. But every one of these trips, they make an announcement. And it, it, it goes something, and I've, I've heard it hundreds of times in local flights, uh, they often make the announcement, especially if you're going over water. I've heard thousands of announcements like this, I'm sure. In the unlikely event of a water landing, is it the seat cushion, cushion beneath your seat? Something. And I, I don't know what the rest of it says. Something about it becomes a flotation device or something. But I don't know what it says. Now, there are two reasons for that. One is, it occurred to me that in the unlikely event of a water landing over the Atlantic, I wouldn't need to worry about the seat cushion. You understand? I just get ready to meet Jesus, okay? We're not going to crash into the Atlantic and then suddenly, okay, take the little seat cushion and float there. Boat comes by a month later. Uh, but the other thing was I fly constantly, and it's never relevant. you understand? My mind is programmed the moment that announcement starts to tune it out because it's not relevant. It's relevant. You've got to buckle up. got to have the seat. I mean, they're going to check you on that and be sure about it. But the other things are simply not relevant. So the moment I hear it, my mind goes into another gear, and it's in one ear and out the other. And I would say that many of us, when we read scriptures in the New Testament, unconsciously do the exact same thing. And I could even preach it here, and you could even say amen and not realize that you did it. I mean, we were so used to doing that kind of thing. You can say, great sermon, man. I really enjoyed that preaching, and it didn't even get in. Maybe that's why you enjoyed it, because if it got in, it would disturb you. And people sometimes after the message say, man, I really enjoyed it. I said, we're not supposed to enjoy it. Doc, I really enjoyed that surgery. Thanks. So there's a scene here in Thessalonica where... Paul, as his custom was, as a Jewish man, went to the synagogue to preach. And, and then it stirs up some controversy. Verse 4, some of the Jews there were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a large number of God-fearing Greeks and not a few prominent women. But the Jews were jealous, so they rounded up some bad characters from the marketplace, formed a mob, and started a riot in the city. They rushed to Jason's house in search of Paul and Silas in order to bring them out to the crowd, but when they did not find them, they dragged Jason and some other brothers before the city officials, shouting, These men who have caused trouble all over the world, or in the King James, who have turned the world upside down, or, or literally rendering the Greek, who, who have subverted the inhabited world. These men who have caused trouble all over the world have now come here, and Jason has welcomed them into his house. They are all defying Caesar's decrees, saying that there is another king, one called Jesus. When they heard this, the crowd of the city officials were thrown into turmoil. Go back to the 16th chapter. Paul drives a demon out of a, a girl who was a fortune teller, a slave girl that, that made all this money for her owners. She gets delivered. They can't make money anymore. They get upset. They round up Paul and Silas and bring him before the magistrates. Verse 20, this is what they say. These men are Jews 
and are throwing our city into an uproar by advocating customs unlawful for us Romans to accept your practice. They're throwing our city in an uproar. Let's just go over to Acts, the 24th chapter, when a charge is brought against Paul. Now I understand these are the words of the accusers. I understand that these are charges being brought against the apostles by people trying to create trouble for them. I understand that, but I'm going to raise a question to you in a moment. So this is what Paul's fellow Jews say to Felix. The lawyer they have speaking for them. Verse 5, We have found this man to be a troublemaker, stirring up riots among the Jews all over the world. He is a ringleader of the Nazarene sect and even tried to desecrate the temple, so we ceased. He's a troublemaker, stirring up riots among the Jews all over the world. Now, I want you to understand something about false accusations. I want you to understand how these things arise. Why was Jesus accused of driving out demons and healing the sick by the power of Satan? I've asked students in classes sometimes that very question. And you got a lot of good answers, but we often miss the most basic and simple answer. The reason Jesus was accused of driving out demons and healing the sick by the power of Satan was because he was driving out demons and healing the sick. Do you understand what I'm saying? If there is some church down the block that does not believe in divine healing, does not believe in the power of God, has never seen a miracle happen of healing or deliverance, demons leaving people in 50 years, no one is standing in front of that church building with signs saying, they're driving out demons and healing the sick by the power of Satan. Because it's not happening. No one on radio, you know, some, some anti-heresy broadcast, nobody on radio is attacking those people by name and showing, you know, videos and, and, and giving audio clips and so on and so forth, exposing that what they're doing, they're doing by another power because they're not doing it. Do you understand? Before you can be falsely accused of healing the sick and driving out demons by the power of Satan, you actually have to heal the sick and drive out demons. He was falsely accused of doing it by another power, but he was doing it by the power of the Spirit. He was actually doing it. If, if you suddenly, police get a report, there's a riot. There's some people instigating a riot. And the police are told, try to find out who's doing it. Do you know the first place they do not go? They do not go to the cemetery. Because the people in the cemetery are not instigating riots. Their time has passed. They're gone. You know another place they don't go? To the nursing home. You're the guys that are stirring up trouble. You're the guys that's turning the world upside down. Listen, the time has passed for those folks. They're sitting there quietly. They're 80, 90 years old. They're sitting in their wheelchairs. They're not starting riots. The reason that the apostles were accused of stirring up trouble wherever they went and, and, and preaching these kinds of things because in point of fact, Wherever they went, the gospel did stir things up. And the accusers falsely accused them. And the accusers said that you're trying to overthrow our city and so on. But in point of fact, if you pray a prayer like, Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. When you begin to pray those prayers, your will be done on heaven as it is on earth, you are praying a radical, revolutionary, counterculture, overthrow the system prayer. 
I preached a message at Brownsville years ago called How to Start a Revolution. And we had one of our missionaries that was sent out by our school was in China at that time. And someone unwisely decided to send him that video. He did not send a video into China called How to Start a Revolution. And it never made it to him. And folks sent it back. You know, somehow it was intercepted by other believers. They said, do not send this stuff in here. But, but listen, when you go in there with a Bible, it's got to be smuggled in. There's this limited number of Bibles printed for the, for the government church to make things look good. But the Bible is considered subversive and dangerous by the communists. When, when our troops serve in other parts of the world, say Saudi Arabia during the first Gulf War and things, you know, they want to limit you know, Bibles and things like that because they understand the Bible is dangerous to their system. They understand that the Word of God is talking about another kingdom. No, these believers would give honor to Caesar. They would, they would live by the law. They were peaceable people. But when they were told to confess Caesar as Lord, they refused. And it was considered subversive. And when they began to preach the kingdom of God, and everyone needs to submit to the rule of God, and yes, we are citizens here under the Roman Empire, and we are submitted, but there is a higher law and a higher authority. That was considered subversive, and that's why people pay with their lives. When Islam claims to be the only way to God and the only true religion, and you preach, no, Muhammad is not the last prophet, not a prophet at all. Jesus is the only way, and only through his death and resurrection can salvation come. That is subversive to the system. And that's why people in these countries are paying with their lives. That's why people are martyred. That's why they're put in prison because the government or the state religion tries to keep it down. I want you to hear something today. The gospel is just as subversive to the American way of life as it is to the Islamic way of life and the communist way of life. In other words, our materialistic, this-world-oriented, greed-centered, fashion-driven, sports-addicted, sinful society is just as much built on another kingdom as these others are. And the gospel coming into this culture comes with as much force and power and conflict. I'm talking about loving conflict. I'm talking about sacrificial conflict. We don't take up the sword. We take up the cross. We, we overcome evil with good. We are the peacemakers. We lay our lives down. But the real gospel coming in the real life and power of the Spirit lived out by God's people is a threat to the religious establishment in this country. And many times we are more part of that establishment than we even realize. And it is a threat to the world system. Jesus said in John 15, If the world hates you, remember that it hated me first. He said, If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you're not of the world, but I've chosen you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Then you read through all these verses, you read through... Almost every single book in the New Testament talks about suffering for the faith. Almost every single book. The book of Acts is filled with it. The Gospels talk about it all the time. Jesus, in the Sermon on the Mount, in the Beatitudes, starts right there. The end of the Beatitudes. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness. Well, what's, what's the relevant? Is that just like in the unlikely event of a, of a water landing? Well, what are all these verses? Matthew, the 10th chapter. He says this. He said, the servant's not greater than his master. If they called me, 
the master of the house, Beelzebub, prince of demons. What are they going to call you, the servants? Paul wrote to Timothy in 2 Timothy 3 and recounted the sufferings through which he had passed. And then he said, yes, in verse 12, 2 Timothy 3.12, yes, and all who live a godly life in Messiah Jesus will suffer persecution. Now look, I'm not asking for trouble. I'm not trying to stir up trouble. I'm not looking for persecution. I don't feel guilty that I haven't been martyred. But you've got to read all these verses and read what happened in the book of Acts and, and, and read about the church in different parts of the world suffering persecution, opposition. And say, well, something's not lining up here. And when we're reading this, and then we're living this, and something's just not lining up. When I first got saved, I, I got a job, a county job, working on this beach where we'd come in early and had to clean the thing up, and you know, cigarette butts that were there, and just all kinds of things. And, and sometimes the tide would bring all this junk in. And I was always witnessing to the guys there all the time. I remember. One guy came up to me, you know, he picked up a dead eel that the tide had driven in. And the seagulls had been ripping at it. He said, if you raise this from the dead, I'll believe. I mean, we were constantly in this environment. And we had these things called idiot sticks, you know. It was kind of a thick pointed thing on the end. And then you just, you had a handle you'd squeeze and you could just pick things up like that. And just kind of, just, however you describe it, I'm not mechanically inclined. Kind of like that. Exactly like that, if you're listening on audio. Exactly like that. And we'd have these competitions, you know, how many cigarette butts we could get, you know, filled in this little area. You know, it used to, be, to get two or three would be difficult. I remember the day I set the record, which I believe is actually the world record. But it was certainly the record that day. You know, 23, just, you know, all piled up in this one little area. And, and towards the end of the summer season, there was an invasion of yellow jackets. You know, kind of these bee-type things, but, you know, these yellow jackets came in, and, and they would just be real. They'd go after if there was anything sweet, if there was soda laying around or pop or whatever you call it, you know, that, that laying around. They'd go after those cans of, you know, candy or things like that. They'd swarm around these. It was towards the end of the year, and the place was pretty empty. And, and some of the guys... We, we noticed they were, like, swarming around these garbage cans and things. So we were trying to, like, spear them with these sticks, you know, trying to catch them in midair and squeeze on them. And then, and then others were actually throwing the sticks through the air. You know, I mean, these metal things, you know, throwing them through the air to try to spear these things in midair, you know. And uh, I, in the midst of this, and there's nobody around, really. We're I mean, poking these things in the air, and then it's, it's crazy. I happened to look up and notice a guy that we used to call the Count because he bore a striking resemblance to, to Bela Lugosi, who used to play Count Dracula in the old movies. So we called him the Count because he looked like Bela Lugosi, looked like Dracula. And I, I see this guy walking up there, and uh, as soon as I see him, I just kind of walked away from the little scene here. And uh, he goes, Brown, come over here. So I go walking over there. Says, what? Are they doing? And it's the craziest scene. I mean, now I'm like 50 feet away. Here these guys trying to spear yellow jackets in midair, you know, and clicking these things. And it was, what are they doing? I was praying during the service this morning, just saying, God, there's something, some memory stirring in me that seems to be applicable. And that's the one he brought back to mind. What are they doing? I feel like God looks down at us sometimes. 
and our religious world and our Sunday Christianity and who we are. And said, what, what are they doing? What are they doing down there? Man, we're, ra- we're a radical church. Here. You know, it's like we think it's a radical army. You know, the world, there's a massive fight and battle going on there. People getting cut down left and right. But we're radical. We come in here with our guns and rifles. and We're in a, oh, a shout of victory. Shout of victory. Yeah, okay, we'll come back and do that again next week. Shout, no, no, no. It's not, it's not radical to shout. And, you know, we're going to take down the enemy. Everyone said, we're going to take down the enemy. Take down the enemy. He's coming up. Coming down. And we just, you know, walk out and have a nice meal somewhere. You know, that was great service, wasn't it? Whoa, how powerful. I felt that. All the while there's a war going on. People getting shot down and killed and Come back next week, we'll do that again. It's like, God looks at what are they doing? You got brothers and sisters being tortured to death for their faith, you know, because they, they stood on a shame for the gospel. And we have a lovely religious service, and a lovely religious meal, raise our kids in a lovely religious home, and, 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 and never really get involved in anything that brings any conflict of any kind by speaking the truth in love, by living holy lives, by standing up. Think other believers that are with the Lord now might let's look down and say, what, what are they doing? What is that? Listen, I'm all for public gathering. I'm all for exactly what you did this morning. We do the same thing. Go after God in worship. Go after God in prayer. Our, our intimacy with Him, our worship with Him, that, that's number one. That's above all. The secret place. Living godly, pure lives. Living above reproach in the business world, in the community here. That, that's a given. Amen to all of that. But, but, why in the world are we actually here? And what's our connection to all of these kind of verses? And, and why is it that the world is not treating us the way it treated Jesus and the apostles? Again, I'm not looking for trouble. Thank God for, for peace and safety where we can live in that environment and preach the gospel freely. But I'm just asking, why does our experience seem to be so different from all of this? Why is it that which was normal for them is almost unknown to us Actually, I figured it out. I figured it out. I thought about it for a while. Pastor told you I'm a smart guy. I figured it out. That's because God has changed. That's why. God must have changed. He probably doesn't bring conflict. It's probably not a kingdom battle anymore. Probably the holy and the unholy get along just fine now. Probably, you know, young unsaved people in their schools get along just fine with saved people in their schools, and there's never any conflict, persecution, opposition. God must have changed. Standards must have changed. How many accept that explanation? Good for you. No, actually, seriously, I have figured it out. It's it's not that God has changed. Of course not. I said America is such a good Christian nation. That's it. Praise the Lord. Because this is not the world here. This is this is like gospel terror, this gospel kingdom. I mean, after all, one half of Americans attend church services at least once a month. And about a third go every single week. So it's because we're such a good Christian nation and because the world opposes the gospel, but actually the world has changed. That's it. And the fact that we have legally slaughtered more than 40 million children, babies in the womb, in the last 30-plus years and the fact that we export pornography and smut around the world, and the fact that the Islamic world calls us the great Satan, and, and the fact that compared to the industrialized world, developed nations, we have the highest divorce rate, 
fact, the divorce rate in the evangelical church in America now is higher than the divorce rate among atheists. And the fact that in the developed world we have by far the highest number of single-parent families. This is not to condemn single parents here or those who've gone through the trauma of divorce. I'm just talking about statistically in the, in the country. We have by far the highest rate of sexually transmitted diseases in the industrialized world. Even with our president now signing a bill passed by Congress outlawing partial birth abortion, it's still being held up in the courts. We still can't move forward with it. Same-sex marriages, just people breaking the law and doing what they want, happening all over the country. Flip, flip on TV for an hour or so and ask yourself, is this a godly Christian nation? No, God has not changed. And the world has not changed. We've changed. We've become part of a lovely, toothless, toothless religion that doesn't cost much and doesn't do much. Thank you for not shouting amen. I appreciate that. What am I saying? It's very simple. And I believe I'm speaking to people with an open heart. Otherwise, God would not allow me to speak like this. We'd get to know each other and have kind of a, a, an intermediate message so that you'd really like me. And, and, and then once you're, you're kind of sitting there, you know, when we fatten you for the slaughter, then we come with the real punchline. But I believe your hearts beat in similar ways to my heart. I wouldn't be here otherwise speaking this way. See, somehow we got this concept that, that Jesus came into the world to establish a lovely new home and garden religion called Christianity. And that it's something you, you come to church as opposed to being the church. You, you get involved in a few activities as opposed to giving your life for the gospel. And we pretty much just invite people to, to receive forgiveness of sins and have a clean slate so they can go to heaven without telling them, that, which is wonderful. And the central part of the story, as was spoken to us today, that reminder of complete forgiveness through the cross. But we forget to tell people the rest of the story that Jesus purchased us with His blood and we now belong to Him. And we live to do the will of God. One of my friends has been a missionary in Italy for over 30 years. Only one half percent of the country of Italy is saved. It's an unbelievable place to minister. There's more missionary burnout in that country than almost any other country in the world. Amazing. He was in Germany visiting one time. Was attending a church service one Sunday. And a guy pulled up in a really nice car. Got out of the car and started to walk in. And my friend, who's lived very sacrificially for many, many, many years, his whole family, said to this fellow, hey, that's a nice car you got there. And the guy immediately, knowing the way this missionary had lived, thought that he was criticized which was the last thing on his mind. And this guy said, wait a second. He said, that's not my car. That's the Lord's car. He got defensive immediately. In other words, don't, don't make it like I got this nice car when you're a missionary sacrificing. I got this nice car, which is not what my friend was saying, but that's how he took it. He got defensive. He said, that's not my car. That's the Lord's car. He said, the Lord blessed me with it. The Lord worked a miracle so I could. He said, that's not my car. That's the Lord's car. And my friend said to him, hey, great. I mean, the Lord's got a nice car. I was just telling you, it's a nice car. During the service, he's sitting next to this fellow, the fellow who owns the Lord's car. He's sitting next to him, or he uses the Lord's car. And my friend gets a note that their missionary, who was in India, had just arrived at the airport in Germany and needed a ride from the airport. 
And my friend didn't have a vehicle. Then he realized, wait a second, this guy has the Lord's car. Here's one of the Lord's servants coming in from India, and he's arrived. So he says to him, I, I talked to him recently, and I verified the story because I preached on it and shared that illustration through the years, and I want to make sure I hadn't changed it. He turns to the guy next to him and said, Hey, can I use the Lord's car to pick up this missionary that just came into the airport? And the guy says, That's not the Lord's car. That's my car. You're not taking my car. Oh, exactly what we did. You know, the Lord says, okay, you two, sell your possessions, go to India for life, tell your family they'll never see you again. What? I, I didn't, Lord, I didn't even pray about that. Lord, I didn't, you know, sometimes we want to get really spiritual. By the way, that may have been from the Lord, I don't know, but just in case. You never know. I was in revival service one night and just ran, made a random passing comment. I said, hey, listen, you, you, you may be a carpenter, you may be the mother of five, God's calling you to school, you need to come. The end of the service. It's just a random comment. The end of the service. A couple comes walking up. He says, I'm the carpenter. She says, I'm the mother of five. There are now missionaries in Poland. Never thought of Poland. Never thought of being missionaries. But they believed God was calling them to the school and said, God, we just need one more confirmation. And I just made some random comment. I didn't know God was speaking through me. That's probably why it happened. You know, sometimes we want to be really spiritual. And you say, well, what would you do if the Lord said He was calling you to China? And say, I'd certainly pray about it. That's not spiritual to pray about a command from the Lord. Do you understand that? All right, Lord, let me think. I'll pray about it. Why are you praying about it? If He said do it, then why are you praying about it? Why are you asking Him? Joey, turn the TV off now and come to dinner. All right, Mom, I'll pray about it. All right, Mom, let's come and have a talk about it. No, you know what? what is, you may pray about it to be sure that it's really God. But when you determine it's God, there's only one thing that a servant does. Yes, Lord. It is not radical for a servant to do his master's will. How many of you that, that have employees at the end of the week get on your hands and knees and kiss their feet and say, thank you, thank you, thank you for doing what I paid you to do this week. I cannot thank you enough for doing your job. What can I say? No, if they don't do their job, they're out the door. We, listen, we are not hired employees. We are sons and daughters, but we have been bought with a price. And Jesus is our Lord, and we live to do His will. And if you try to save your life, you lose it. Most of the way we live is calculated to save our lives. You're in school. Don't be too radical. Why? Because you want people to still like you. As opposed to, I'm going to stand for Jesus, and if they reject me, they reject me, but I'm going to be a friend of Jesus. And then as a friend of Jesus, I can really be a friend of these people. Man, we're on our jobs, and, and, and everything is wisdom. wisdom. Yeah, I believe in wisdom. I believe in compassion. You live in your neighborhood. You're reaching out to your neighbors. Yes, use wisdom and compassion. But so much of what we do is just to cover up because we don't want to be rejected, and we don't want to be misunderstood, and we want to get our promotion, and we, we want to fit in this lovely American society, and we can be part of this lovely Christian religion, and it doesn't cost us anything. That's not the gospel. And that's why we can have so many tens of millions of believers. The statistics are right. We have over 90 million believers in America. Maybe 100 million if statistics are accurate. And yet, the country goes, continues to go in ways that, that, that get us sick to our stomachs in pain. What would happen if we recovered 
I'm just going to take a few minutes and bring this to a close and give you things to think about and pray about. What would happen if we understood that Jesus, Son of God, came into this world as a Jewish rabbi, not to start a new religion called Christianity, but to advance the kingdom of God, to set the captives free, to initiate what you could call God's revolution in the world, to overthrow the powers of darkness, not through human force, not through anger, intimidation, rebellion. God forbid, that's the way of the world. But through laying our lives down, through prayer, through fasting, through holy living, through sacrificial giving, through serving, through touching the world, through preaching the gospel, setting the captives free. What if he came into this world to overthrow the status quo? Revolution is radical, dramatic, sweeping change. What if he came into the world as the appointed prophetic revolutionary? Oh, the, the world misunderstood him, and, and they tried to accuse him of just wanting to set up his own kingdom in this world. No, 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 it's a spiritual what if he came to start a revolution? A revolution of love and transformation. It begins by laying down his life to free us and save us so we become part of his family. And then he enlists us, risen from the dead, ascended to heaven. He enlists us with all authority in heaven and earth belonging to him and says, now go. Now go and make disciples. Now go and set people free. Now go and change them so they can be living for God. And, and what if the qualification was... Whatever it costs, whatever the consequences, whether by, la by life or by death. That's been a school model for years, by life or by death. We got it from Paul's words in Philippians 1.20. That whether by life or by death, he wanted Jesus glorified in his body. That's our starting point. That's kind of entry level. That's what we believe. When you start to think, the purpose of my life is to glorify God. The purpose of my life is to make disciples. Yeah, I'm in this world, so I may be called into certain education. I may be called to a certain career, etc., etc. But that's just how I maintain my life in this world and infiltrate the society. My goal here is not to get rich. My goal here is not to get famous. My goal here is not even to get comfortable. My goal is here not even to have a nice family. My goal is to overthrow the status quo. My goal is to set captives free. I'm talking for all of us. My goal is to make disciples. My heart beats to see the Great Commission. That's just normal. And when you start living like that, it starts to cost you something. There will always be opposition to the preaching of the cross. There will always be opposition to holy living. There will always be opposition to, to selfless love. There's a true story confirmed to me by someone who knew the people. It took place in Romania under the communists fascist actually at that point. It's heavy persecution. Very difficult for believers to just live freely as believers. There was a church service one particular night. In the middle of the service, doors swing open. Two armed soldiers come walking. Walking into the building. Guns fully loaded. Close the door behind them. It really happened. Close the door behind him. He said, if you want to remain loyal to Jesus, we will kill you. If you want to deny him, you can have your life go out. Real life. Real gun. Maybe you just got married and, and your newlywed is home. 
What if your parents are dependent on you? Your livelihood supports them. What if you just, something even more mundane, you just got a scholarship into the new school. You've been working towards this for years. What if you had someone homesick that you needed to get? I mean, all the excuses. What if you just think, man, if I live, I could do something for God once I get out of here. You want to save your life? The door is open. Go ahead and deny Jesus. And a few people actually stood up and left. But amazingly, everybody else did stay. Once it was done, soldiers locked the door, put their guns down. So praise the Lord. We are also believers. But we could not risk worshiping with anyone who was not willing to die for Jesus. That, friends, is the normal New Testament gospel. That is the normal New Testament commitment. We may not know how it's going to translate out in our society. It's a constant prayer at fire. Father, how do we live this thing out? How do we work it out in the family? How do we work it out in the community? How do we work it out in the mission field? We're, we're constantly going to God. We're constantly looking at the Word like so many others are saying. We know there's more. We want to see your power demonstrated. We want to see your kingdom come. We want to see the demonstration that Jesus is risen from the dead. We want to be a holy band, a firebrand that shake up things for the gospel. Not just for controversy's sake, God forbid. Absolutely not out of rebellion, God forbid. But as peace-loving, peacemaking people who are following Jesus, let what was said of Him be said of us. And let the works that He did be done by us so that people in a dying and hurting world that need mercy and compassion and help and deliverance can be set free. We were part of revival in Pensacola, and that was wonderful. And the fruit of that is still being born around the world. But that was not the end all of anything. That raised the standard and raised what God was doing in many hearts and lives and brought many into the kingdom. Our issue continues to be, how do you live this thing out? Five years, ten years, twenty years down the line. How does this thing work its way out when people are so used to an accommodating religion here and you can even just stay back home and just kind of flip the channel? Again, I picture God just looking. I know some people are bedridden, can't get out, but others just oh, don't like that preaching. Oh, I like that song. God looks down and goes, what are they doing? What is that? Well, that's the substance in the center of the religious and spiritual life. I want to encourage every one of you today to count the cost afresh. Not to come under condemnation and say, oh man, I'm just a useless. No, no, no. God has a purpose for you. God has a plan to use you more than you've been used exactly who you are. You have a specific place and role to touch the world in a unique way. I want to encourage and challenge every single one of you in these coming days and weeks to really ask God, Lord, what's it all about? Lord, why am I here? What does it really mean to be a follower of Jesus? Lord, show, open up your word. Show me what it really means to be a disciple, Lord. And as you show me, give me the grace to follow this thing out. There's something happening among young people around the country, around the world, a stirring, an awakening. Uh, there, there's a fire that's in them. They need moms and dads. They need, they need older folks that are just as radical in their heart to say, come on, let's do this thing together. There needs to be a joining of the generations. And out of that, this nation will be rocked. And I believe that we are on the verge of another great move of God, greater than what we've seen in this last generation. And not limited to a place or two, but breaking out all over the place with a holy violence that will bring the church into confrontation with the world. God's looking for disciples. God's looking for frontline warriors. 
God's looking for those who have been washed and cleansed with the blood to say, here I am. Use me to glorify your name by life or by death. And you will live your life to the full and be free. How many understand what I'm talking about? Let's just pray right now. Heavenly Father, give us ears to hear what your Spirit is saying. Lord, may this Word continue to work in us. Continue to move on us. Continue to challenge us a day, a week, a month, a year from now as it continues to challenge me day by day. May the truth of your kingdom rise up within us. May the revolutionary calling rise up within us. May the call to be disciples and world changers raise up. Thank you for everything you're doing among these people. here. Thank you for every good thing that's taking place and the outreaches in the parks and the pouring themselves into their kids and the being witnesses in the business place. Thank you for all of it. But they know, we know, I know, there's more, Father. Bring us into the reality of what it means to be your kingdom children in this world, bearing fruit, changing lives, overthrowing the kingdom of darkness by the power of your Spirit. Raise up something radical here that will be a full expression of your heart, and the reverberations will go from here to the nation. May it be so. In Jesus' name.